0: Some of you have had the experience of moving to a new country and needing to set up your life in an entirely new environment and culture. One that's completely foreign to other people adjust to a culture that is not their own and in a society with which they're unfamiliar. And I've seen this a number of times with foreigners who move into Brazil. It's overwhelming. And it's not because it's Brazil that's overwhelming. Any new culture, any new context is going to be overwhelming to someone who's never experienced it before. But some, particularly, some particular challenges of life in Brazil, perhaps that foreigners are unaware of, one of those is a CPF. I remember when I first moved back here as an adult... In 2002, I didn't know what a CPF was. I hadn't had one before I left. In fact, it wasn't even called CPF when I lived here before. It was Siki, I think. Um, and I remember, I think it was the first week we were here, what that was. So I just said, yeah, no. And they wouldn't let me pay. They would not let me purchase something there. And I literally said to them, I want to give you money right now. But you won't take my money if I don't give you this number? No. So that's an interesting one. That's a challenging one. How do you get your driver's license in a new country? Do you need to do the test or can you get yours translated? What about the traffic laws? Hojizu is a really fun one here in, in Sao Paulo for foreigners. A lot of foreigners have had a, a not so pleasant surprise um, after a few weeks and months of driving here because no one explained it to them. No one explained how that functions. What about figuring out your, your taxes? Imposto de renda here. There are some of us that have been here years, and we're still trying to figure out how you get the gas turned on. And again, for for foreigners coming from certain countries, the idea of having a, a gas canister that you have to buy and change yourself can be terrifying. How do you deal with banking in a foreign country? My personal opinion is that Brazilian banking is far ahead of American banking, far easier to navigate and use, but still it's new. It's different to say nothing of the language. When a person's moving into a new context with a foreign language, everything is overwhelming. It's an overwhelming task. But, as we all know, it can be accomplished piece by piece, day by day, step by step, mistake by mistake, fine by fine. It can be eventually accomplished. So far in the book of Acts, has occurred to Jews or God-fearers people who had at least some knowledge of Yahweh, the Jewish God, and some understanding, some background in the Old Testament scriptures. But now Paul arrives in Athens, a city known for its thinkers, its philosophy, and as Paul discovers, its idolatry. The city was full of idols. So many different gods and goddesses were worshiped by the Athenians that Paul even finds an altar dedicated to the unknown God. Just in case they miss anything for the unknown God. It's, so, it's kind of like we would say in Portuguese when we've offended people, you know, just to kind of cover everything. Desculpa qualquer coisa. You know, I'm sorry about anything I may have done somehow in order to offend you. Um, I, I want to cover all my bases. In Athens, Paul will evangelize in three distinctly different venues: in the synagogue, in the marketplace, and in the Areopagus. The synagogue would correlate today to some kind of religious environment, perhaps a church or maybe another religious context. The marketplace is just the public square; it might be a praça, it might be you know on the bus or in a taxi or. On the street the Areopagus, which was the academy of the day. So today it might be in a, at a university. Or where the cultural and intellectual elites of Athens would meet to debate. This, so it, it's Paul's preaching to this last group, the Areopagus. To which Luke devotes most of his attention. And this is the challenge that Paul faces in Athens. How to evangelize a population that is so entrenched in pagan idolatry that they have no concept whatsoever of the true God. So they don't have a shared background in the Old Testament scriptures. They don't have that beachhead of having some concept of the Jewish God. How do we, Fisher people of, off the coast of Southeast Brazil, Where arriving at a little fishing community, they asked if they had ever heard of Jesus. And they said, no, but maybe he lives at the next village. I mean, that's the concept. No understanding, no background of the true God of the universe. So we are going to follow along with Paul as he confronts this pagan idolatry. I'll be reading in verse 17. I'm sorry, chapter 17, beginning with verse 16 in Acts And as we read it, I want you to compare, I want you to keep in mind this idea, just as someone would move into another country and have absolutely no concept of how to live there. So Paul is coming into a completely idolatry. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. Talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone the that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus. Also a woman named, also a woman named Damaris. And a number of others. So, in confronting idolatry, the first principle on which Paul focuses is that God, the true God, the only God, is the Creator. That's his first point, his first confrontation. That's the logical step. Start at the beginning. With this, Paul affirms that the the universe has an originator, that it did not come from nothing, that it's not random. It was created intentionally. Now, what follows from that logically is that if God is the creator, that he is also Lord. And that's what Paul says. He has the only say that matters And though Paul doesn't say it yet, he clearly implies that if this God exists and if he is Lord, then people should submit, must submit to his Lordship. If we're ignorant of an authority, maybe we can get by for a while without obeying it. But once the authority is made known, then we have a responsibility to submit. I remember occasionally as a child in school, For one reason or another, the teacher would be late in coming to class. So the bell would ring to start class, and there's always so much joy in the students when the teacher wasn't there. Now, the younger the, the children were, the dumber we were right? No offense. What does that mean to the other teachers? Don't make noise. Let's enjoy our freedom. The more noise we make, the more disturbance we make, the more likely it is that some other teacher that's not supposed to be in here will come in here and establish some sort of order. But when you're much younger, like third or fourth grade your cognitive abilities haven't developed that far yet. And so all you know is, freedom! There are no children, there's no teacher here. And I remember one particular day, our class was thoroughly taking advantage of the absence of the teacher. There was running, there was screaming, there was throwing things at girls, there was all kinds of disturbance going on. And then all of a sudden, we kind of felt this like cold wind come from the door and there stood a teacher. And immediately just the presence of the authority causes everyone all the kids go he mm-hmm. has arrived. So if we're ignorant of the authority fine we can maybe kind of get away with disobedience. But once the authority is made known, now we are responsible. And this is what Paul is drawing out to the Athenians. He's introducing them to this God who is creator. He is Lord, He is authority. So now that you're being introduced to Him, that is going to require responsibility from you in your reactions to Him. The second point that Paul makes about this Almighty God, introducing Him, to the the pagan idolatrous Athenians is that God is unlimited. First, God is creator. Secondly, he is unlimited. Three ways that Paul distinctly defines God's lack of limitations. One, he's an opportunity to travel to modern day Greece and you get to tour many of the ruins of ancient Greece. So many of those ruins are ruins of temples. Different temples each Dedicated to a specific pagan deity or entity. Paul says this God is not limited by temples. The true God of the universe can't be contained. You can't hold him within a concrete block, house, or building. He's unlimited by physical space. Secondly, in the same breath with buildings, Paul makes it clear that God is also not limited by any kind of human constraint. There's no limitation that humans can put upon God. He's not limited to temples. Now, that doesn't mean that people can't serve God, but it means that God doesn't depend on us for his survival or for his authority. He doesn't need us to serve him or else he can't function. So God's not limited by any human constraints. And finally, God is not limited by any need. God does not need anything. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. There is nothing that God lacks. When I was in first grade, I remember our class did secret friends at Christmas time. Amigo secreto. The teacher put all of our names on a little piece of paper, put it into some kind of container, and then we each picked out a name and read it, and that person was our secret friend. And the name I happened to pull out was um, the wealthiest person in the class. And I remember this girl from time to time, um, she would be picked up by helicopter from school, truly, true story. The helicopter would land on the soccer field, she would be picked up because they wanted to get to their farms um, quickly on the weekends without facing traffic. Um, There was a pet show at the school. So her husband, her husband, not her husband, her brother brought his um, racing horse, thoroughbred racing horse, together with a groom and a person solely responsible for picking up the messes that the horses would make during the day. <laughs> completely different world, completely different world. I remember as a first grader, I was like, oh, Meg, this is who I got. And I went home and I gave it to my parents. And I remember mom saying, what do we get for this person? What in the world? What kind of gift are we going to be able to give her? I still remember. I don't know if you remember, Mom, uh, paper dolls. But anyway, um, it's like totally, this person needs need anything from us. And the fact that God does not have needs also means, or the fact rather that He is unlimited means that He is likewise unmanipulatable. God can't be manipulated by us or by anything, by any entity. And often, um, in our fallen nature, we try to manipulate other people, and we do that, don't we? Through the needs that other people have, that's how that's how people are susceptible to manipulation. God has no needs; he can't be manipulated. The third point that Paul makes in introducing God to the Athenians is that God is the sustainer of life. So, first, God. An important point that Paul makes, because a philosophy, I guess you could call it a religion, but it was more a philosophy, was beginning to take root in Athens at this time, which actually has played out over the course of centuries. Today, we call this philosophy Deism. And deism is the belief that there is some original cause of the universe. So we might call that cause God, but that this original cause created the universe, set it in motion, and then is completely hands-off for the rest of time. And an, uh, an analogy that has been used for this is uh, what the old alarm clocks that you had to wind up and in order for them to function. So that this original call sets it in motion and then ignores it. So when Paul makes this affirmation that God is the one who gives everyone life and breath and everything else. God is unlimited, he has no needs. He's the ultimate giver and he's the one who sustains. He gives breath, he gives life and everything else. He is daily and minute by minute and second by second and microsecond by microsecond involved intimately in the sustenance of his creation. All life is sustained only by the providence and presence of God. Fourthly, Paul affirms that God is sovereign over history. Let me read again verse 26. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the homes in history and the boundaries of their lands. God's sovereign over history. He's sovereign over all peoples. He has all authority and all power. And so Paul puts this out there to the Athenians and the implied argument is why would you then choose to worship an idol that is less than the all-sovereign God? Do you really want to challenge the one entity in the universe that holds all authority and all power. And why would anyone ever wish to belong to or serve or love or worship anything less? A few years ago, I, had, uh, I was renting a car. We actually have an upgrade available to you today. I said, no, thank you. And they said, well, why wouldn't you take the upgrade? And I said, because I'm sure it's going to cost me more money. No. No, no, no. This is a free upgrade. It's a bigger car. It's a nicer car. It's a more comfortable car. It's a fancier car. Do you want it? Well, yes, absolutely. If it's not going to cost me any more, of course, I'd be stupid not to take the better deal, the nicer car, whatever, right? And so I did. It was very enjoyable. But the point, the point is that why would we take something less with something greater is being offered, the greatest? Why would we settle for an idol? Something less than the supreme God of the universe. The fifth point that Paul makes is that God has placed within humanity a thirst for him, person, with a thirst that only God himself can satisfy. Verse 27, God did this. Now he's talking about God's sovereignty over history, marking out the nations and their times. God did this, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from any one of us God wants to be found he has made himself accessible to his creation and he has put in each person a desire, a hunger, a thirst that can only be satisfied fully in him. And Paul says, he's not far off. Meaning he welcomes the meaning, at least in church context. Because what it's come to mean in church context is simply anyone who's unchurched, anyone who doesn't believe. That's not what the word means. A seeker is not just someone who's lost. A person can be lost and not be seeking. A seeker is someone who is looking for, going after, trying to find the truth. And for those people, God says he will be found by them. And he's not far off. But this is where the enemy of humanity strikes. He sells us the lie that that thirst we have for God, that internal hunger for something eternal, that it can be satisfied by others. Something less than God can fill the God-shaped hole in our souls. And that's, that's idolatry, the attempt to satisfy the infinite desire with finite measures. And if that pursuit of idolatry is not checked... If it is not confessed and repented of and forgiven, it will lead to degradation and destruction and ultimately to death. Maybe you've read accounts or maybe watched movies about people who are stranded on the ocean either because of shipwreck or maybe a plane wreck, or somehow they're on a life raft or whatever. And they're dying of thirst. That's the greatest danger. Even though they're surrounded by water, they're dying of thirst. And sometimes that desperation becomes so great, it's their death. Because the salt in the water dehydes, dehydrates their body more quickly and even further. So in that, that, that's an analogy for what for replacing the worship of God with something False, something less than God. It may seem so appealing. We may be so overwhelmed by our need and desire that is a need and desire for God, but we take something lesser and that lesser, that idolatry is what leads ultimately to destruction and death. And then in verse 30, Paul tells the Athenians, you need to repent from this. We need to repent. You need to repent from this seeking other things other than the true God of the universe. Now, we move on to judge. He's the only one that matters. In other words, if we're living in order to please someone or some people, who are we living and trying to please? Because the only opinion that matters is that of the judge, God himself. I like watching Olympics, and I particularly, particularly like watching gymnastics because I can't imagine ever being able to do those bizarre things that those gymnasts are able to do. Their body control, the strength that they display, it's, it's incredible. And sometimes I'll watch a routine, and it's done, and I'm just like, that was incredible. That was amazing. That's a 10 for sure. And then the judges start showing their scores, 5.0, 5.3, 5.3. i'm like what in the world was wrong their left toe the little toe on their foot was pointed a little bit out to the side and the fingernail on their right thumb was a little bit too long and there was one hair that was a little bit out of place and that's an automatic 0.5 deduction and and it's like i would never have noticed any of that and what's the point it doesn't matter what i think of their performance doesn't matter all that matters is what the judge the judges think And so what matters for the Athenians and what matters for us is not what everybody else might imagine. It's not even what those closest to us think. It's what is the judge's perspective on who we are and how we live. What is God's perspective on that? And there are two implications of God as judge that Paul addresses. The first one is that he is judge, but the implication is that he will judge. Because we can get into... A kind of this current of life where it doesn't judge but he does not judge so his identity, his title, his position is judge but he doesn't exercise that judgment and Paul says be careful Athenians and by extension be careful Paulistonus. God will judge he is judge and he will judge when I was about 12, Joel Rast and I were riding our bikes in kind of this abandoned lot, not too far from our homes. And before we realized what happened, we were surrounded by, I don't know, 10, 12, you know, what we used to call trombaginas, guys about our age. But uh, And they, they stopped us and surrounded us, and they said, we want the front, to- the front wheel off your bike, they said to me, literally. Like, they didn't take my bike, they just wanted the front wheel. So they forced us to, I got off my bike, they turned it over, and they started taking off the and um, the boys freaked out and dropped my wheel and took off. They left. The guard never showed up. And so uh, as we were walking back, carrying the wheel and, you know, wheeling my bike on its back tire, we, we walked back and we, I went to the guard and I said, didn't you hear me calling? And he said, oh, I don't go in there. So there was a guard, but he was not guarding On the other hand, God is the judge, and he is and will exercise his function of judge. Secondly, he will not tolerate idolatry forever. That's what Paul says. Such ignorance. So as I said way back at the beginning of the sermon, we're ignorant of authority, maybe we're given a little bit of leeway, but now God will not tolerate that idolatry forever. His mercy toward the idolaters will not continue forever. And idolatry, if it's not confessed, repented of, and stopped, will lead to hell. And God's judgment of idolatry is a removal of his mercy. See, God's mercy is a constraint that holds us, that holds people back from the consequences of our own sin. It's like the dad who's holding the hand of his child, and the child is straining, trying to get away, wants to go after something, trying to get away. And at some point, the dad lets go and says, okay, and the kid goes flying, you know, because they've been straining so hard. That's what you're going to pursue? Go. That's his judgment. His mercy holds us back. His judgment allows us to delve into our idolatry. Point seven. God's representative on earth is a man raised from the dead. Paul says this in verse 31. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, as soon as Paul says that, his teaching is interrupted. It ends because of the resurrection of the dead. And there were three primary responses. The main one was outright rejection. Those who sneered at Paul. And sneered at the suggestion that there could be a resurrection from the dead. The second reaction was contemplation. Hmm, maybe we'd like to hear a little bit more about this, Paul, at another date. But not right now. Not right now. In the future. And the third was belief. There was a limited response of belief in Athens. But if we compare the response in Athens to the response in every other city to which Paul has been so far, we find that the belief response in Athens was far below what it had been in the other cities. And the text says that at that point, Paul leaves the council. The impression we're given is that he was not able to continue his teaching because of this uproar and interruptive response. That God is the creator of all that exists, and as such, He is Lord. That God is unlimited by physical space, by any human limitation, and by any need. Third, God is the sustainer of life, intimately and constantly involved in maintaining His creation. Fourth. God is the only sovereign authority. Fifth, God has placed in all of humanity a thirst that can only be satisfied by him. Sixth, God is the only judge who will in fact judge. And seven, God's representative on earth is a man raised from the dead. Paul is human. Paul is fallible. He was an incredibly anointed man, but he was a presentation of God to the Athenians. I'll let you give me some feedback here. What, what's lacking? What, what seminal event of history was left out? What did you say, Sophia? Jesus' death. The resurrection was mentioned, but Christ's death. The cross isn't in this. And perhaps a better way to understand it is not that Paul was avoiding talking about the cross. It's that he didn't get there yet. He was interrupted before he could get to the cross. He talks about the resurrection of God's representative, but he never explained how and why this man... Now, if you look, if you have your Bibles open and you look at the page, you'll see that from Athens, Paul is going to travel to another Greek city called Corinth. Now, while Athens was more intellectual and philosophical in their idolatry, Corinth was far more carnal, more sensual, extremely promiscuous, and sexually immoral. Paul writes to the Corinthian church at least two letters that have been preserved for us in Scripture, 1 and 2 Corinthians. And it seems that his experience in Athens changed something about the focus and the process of Paul's evangelism. To the Corinthian church, he writes, and this is from chapter 1, verse 23 of 1 Corinthians, was preached, to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Now, a little bit later in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul describes his evangelism in Corinth, and what does he say? When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So remember that context. In Athens, with the intellectual elites, Paul starts at the beginning with the creation, And he begins to list these characteristics of the Almighty God. As soon as he mentions the resurrection, he's interrupted. He doesn't get a chance to continue. There is a belief response, but it is small. There is a lot of resistance to what he has preached. And there's a lot of indifference. Now in Corinth, Corinth is going to eventually become one of the largest and strongest churches in the ancient world. Also one of the churches with the most problems which would make sense given its context, promiscuous carnal culture. So, Paul the cross, and he never had a chance to get to it. So as he travels to Corinth, he decides that he's not going to start with philosophical arguments. He's not going to engage first with debate. He's going to lead with the cross. For I purpose to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, And him crucified. Even though the crucifixion is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And and why is it that Paul arrives at this conclusion? Because the cross is where idolatry meets its defeat. Because on, on the cross, Jesus shows the love of God for all creation and took all human idolatry onto his shoulders so that our idolatry died with him. Additionally, the cross... Every pagan entity, of which I am aware, ancient mythology, Greek and Roman, all the deities had something in common. And what was that? That they demanded sacrifice from their worshipers. What's the greatest contrast to that? The almighty true God of the universe who sacrifices himself For the good of his creation. Do you see that contrast? The pagan gods who demand sacrifice. The true God. Who gives of himself. Sacrifices his own son. To pay for the sins. To make life and forgiveness available to his. I resolve to know nothing among you. Except Jesus Christ. And him crucified. That's the answer to idolatry. Then, it's the answer to idolatry today. Because any idol that we worship, anything to which we give that which we should only give to God, will only take and take and take and take and take from us. And never give back. So let's rephrase and reorder this. God himself paid the price for the sins of humanity by dying in our place. God is creator, he is unlimited, he's a sustainer of life, he's a sovereign authority, he has given each of us a thirst that only he can satisfy, he is the judge, and Jesus, his son, was that man crucified who rose from the dead. This should be a challenge to us today in 2021, a reminder to leave behind our idolatry. Because even if we've taken that original first step of believing in Jesus, Repenting of our sins, receiving his life, accepting his sacrifice on our behalf. We're bombarded with temptations to re-engage in idolatry. To find our fulfillment in other relationships or entertainments or experiences or money or possessions. But we're invited again because of all this that God is to weigh that against our idol. And decide which is worth worshiping and which is not. And secondly, to those of you who have maybe never taken that step of surrender, that first step of saying yes to Jesus, come before the only true God of the universe, this one that Paul was introducing to the Athenians. You're invited to do that today. As Paul said, God is near. He is not far off. And everything that he has done, he has done so that perhaps you would reach out for him and find him. You're invited to come to him in place of your idols. Only he can satisfy. Only he can fulfill the human soul. And that brings us right into our celebration of communion. That only Christ fulfills. And communion is a sign. We're eating and we're drinking. And it satisfies, it fulfills our physical body. Okay, you might be looking at me and saying, Pastor Nathaniel, that little tiny stuff that you give us doesn't satisfy anybody. And the the point is, though, that it is a sign. That little piece of bread and that minuscule cup of juice is a sign. It is a symbol of the body of Jesus and the blood of Christ that was broken and shed for us. And his sacrifice fully and completely fulfills and nourishes and satisfies our souls. Communion is a sign that points to that truth and that reality. So in preparation for celebrating our fulfillment and satisfaction in Christ... Let's be silent for a few moments, intentionally asking the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts if there is any repent of it so that we celebrate this fulfillment and this union with him in purity.